0: This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Hello. This week, we continue our coverage of the ongoing humanitarian crisis at our southern border with first-hand accounts of the conditions in detention facilities for asylum seekers and their children. Dr. Amy Cohen is a child psychiatrist who specializes in trauma and immigration consultation, and she's visited children in detention in Homestead, Florida and McAllen, Texas. She offers some heartbreaking professional insight into the now ubiquitous drawings made by some of these detained children.
1: The thing that you really see in these drawings is how utterly alone and naked and helpless and fearful these children are.
0: Cohen believes the only way things will change is by Americans taking a clear-eyed look at what's happening in their names.
1: I think that if the people of this country really understand what it is that we are doing to these children, that they will rise up and demand of their lawmakers that things change.
0: We also talk with Democrat Ben Stuckert. He is president of the Spokane City Council, and he is currently running for mayor of Spokane. That's all ahead, so stay with us. By now, we have heard and seen reports about the horrific conditions for children of asylum seekers in U.S. detention centers. My guest, Dr. Amy Cohen, is an eyewitness to those conditions. She is a child psychiatrist who specializes in trauma and immigration consultation, and she is a Flores Settlement Council expert, and she joins us now. Dr. Amy Cohen, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you, Stefan. Thank you for having me.
0: So you were part of a team of observers who uh, went in April to a detention facility in Homestead, Florida. What did you encounter there?
1: So Homestead is an enormous facility. It resides on a a pretty abandoned road uh, where there's an uh, Air Force facility and where it's really quite desolate and uh, deserted um it's away from any community it's really away from a feeling of life it's not a place that you can imagine putting children um it's surrounded on all sides by a very tall chain link fence which is covered by a cloth which uh keeps children from being able to see out and obviously keeps mm. people on the outside from being able to see in um One exception to that has been that some protesters who have been down there who have been concerned about the conditions at Homestead for Children have occasionally gotten up on short ladders to be able to wave to the children. And so occasionally children have seen those protesters and occasionally they've tried to wave back and and they've actually gotten into trouble for, for doing that. Um, there's a feeling of kind of dirtiness to it. It's very untidy. Um, Nothing seems to be particularly well-maintained. So there's a quality of grimness. And everywhere you look, generally, there are lines of children who are guarded by people both at the front of the line and the back of the line, and they're either going into or out of one of these buildings.
0: So when you consulted with these children, can you give us a sense of what you encountered there?
1: So the, the the overall feeling that was conveyed by all of the children that I spoke to, and I spoke to children for um, three full days, and all of them related the degree to which the crowding and the massiveness of the place was exceedingly stressful and and overwhelming to them. They talked about how much noise there is, particularly in this enormous tent that they call the school, which is just one long, enormous tent that has been divided by kind of soft fabric dividers into classrooms. And the noise is so tremendous in there that children said they found it very hard to concentrate, they would start to develop headaches, and teachers have to be given microphones in order to be heard above the din. So the crowding and the perpetual noise is is deeply disturbing to kids. Many of them mention the fact that they're never able to get a moment alone or a moment away from it in order to just soothe themselves or calm themselves down. So children who have come in there already highly stressed sometimes from the circumstances of their countries of origin, often from what they've been through at border patrol facilities, having been taken away from families with uncertainty about when they're going to be united with families, these children then face the additional stress of being in these highly crowded, noisy environments where they have absolutely no agency um, and where the rules are exceedingly rigid in order to be able to manage this large number of children.
0: Talk about some of those rules. What are they?
1: So, the, interestingly, given that these are, are teenagers um, and teenagers who are deprived of some things that teenagers really. I don't know if I want to say need, but certainly stress teenagers use to diminish their stress. These children are not allowed to have music of their own, for example. They're not allowed to have writing implements of their own, so they can't journal, they can't draw, things like that. But of all of the rules that exist for these children, um, the thing that they talked about the most, is the most onerous, was their inability to in any way touch another child, Um, children, two girls, with one is uh, crying. One girl described that a friend of hers had lost her mother and was crying inconsolably. And when her friend touched her back, she was told that she was forbidden to do that. And if she did it again, she would be written up and reported. Um, If children are out on the playing field and, you know, one one hits a soccer ball and they want to give a high five, they're told that if they do that, they're going to be reported.
0: Were you told about the rationale behind that rule by any of the officials at Homestead?
1: Well, Sometimes the officials deny that such a rule exists, except that we did hear it consistently from absolutely every single child, as had other teams of, of observers and inspectors who had gone in before us. When the, when the question is raised, uh, what we're told is that this is to protect the children. This is always a, a matter of protecting the children, because sometimes children might be touched in ways that they don't like. So in order to forbid bad touch they've decided to impose a rule of absolutely no touch. Um, And we certainly know, I certainly know as a psychiatrist who's worked with trauma, that the inability to offer any sort of physical comfort to even shake someone's hand if they're leaving, which the boys told us they're not permitted to do, um, is itself deeply disturbing and traumatic and certainly removes from them a way to not only receive, but also to give comfort to each other. It's a normative social interaction, particularly in the countries that these children come from. Culturally, the place where these children come from is a place where um, normative, non-sexual physicality is very much expected. And um, so it's, it's particularly onerous and stressful and unnatural for these children to ever be forbidden to touch and to constantly be threatened uh, if they do this, even in the most innocent and, and kind manner.
0: I want to explore the psychological impact of this in depth with you in a moment. But first, tell us, how do these children wind up in these facilities?
1: So children wind up in these facilities by having first been generally separated from whatever adult, often adult, uh, brought them Uh, to the border. They're then placed uh, sometimes for a short period of time. Now we know sometimes for a much longer period of time in these border protection facilities, which are squalid and dangerous places. And while they are there, they are in the custody of the Department of Homeland Security. At some point, these minor children are then transferred to uh, the Department, uh, the Office of Refugee Resettlement, which comes under the Department of Health and Human Services. And when they are moved from the Department of Homeland Security to the Office of Refugee Resettlement, all of them uniformly are called unaccompanied minors. They're called unaccompanied alien children, UACs. Then they are sent to one or another of the shelters throughout the country. Um, This can be as distant as, you know, in Chicago or New York. um, And these shelters are often divided up by age. If those shelters are considered to be too full, these children are then sent to what are called influx facilities. And Tornillo was an influx facility, which, as most people know, uh, ultimately was closed under tremendous protest back in January. And when Tornillo closed, Homestead really uh, moved into that position of being this influx facility whose purpose really was to take children again for a very temporary period of time until they could then be transferred to the longer-term or more comfortable facilities, somewhat more comfortable facilities, Mm -hmm. um, that ORR contracts with um, the shelter facilities.
0: You mentioned how these detained children are officially called unaccompanied minors, or I believe you said unaccompanied alien children. You are currently writing an op-ed about why people should stop using the terminology unaccompanied minors. Tell us why.
1: Um I'm trying to get people to stop using this this terminology number 1 because it's it's inaccurate and I believe it's a purposely inaccurate descriptor. Many, if not most, of these children come to the border accompanied by someone. If it isn't a parent, it's an aunt or an uncle or a grandparent or a sibling. Nearly all of them, a vast majority of them, come to the border with the expectation of being united, often with a parent who is there, and if not, with some other relative who is there. We know that ultimately over 80% of children in ORR custody are released to family members. So to call all of these children unaccompanied, which is what the government does, is to purposely remove from them the sense of their ongoing affiliation with the people who love them and care for them and with whom they really should be living and and uh, with whom they should be united. Uh, By calling them unaccompanied minors, we perpetuate this myth that these are all kind of orphan children who are arriving by themselves at the border. It also enables the myth to be perpetuated that these are dangerous older teenage males who are coming to a community near you to harm or threaten you. In fact, this is not the case. Um, And furthermore, it enables the government to... Take ownership and to keep ownership of these children by perpetuating the myth that they are the sole agency which is concerned about their well-being and responsible for protecting them. Um, It obscures who really does or should uh, own the guardianship of these children, and, and that's, of course, the people who know and love them the best.
0: And all of this is uh, moving us toward talking about the psychological impact here on these children. And, you know, after you visited children in a detention facility in McAllen, Texas in 2018, you wrote an article for InStyle magazine in which you said, quote, what we have inflicted on these children is the psychological equivalent of cancer. Tell us what you mean.
1: What I mean is that... uh we receive children who are already highly traumatized, many of them, from the circumstances in their countries of origin. Um, the the things that many of these children have endured are, are, are really extraordinary. And the trip they make is often arduous. And they make it with enormous hope. And again, they make it anchored to the people who are there to protect them and take care of them. When we remove them from those people we inflict on them a level of trauma which comes upon an already vulnerable child, which often produces what are irreversible consequences in these children. Sometimes consequences which, like cancer, are delayed. Sometimes we don't see those consequences until a bit down the line. These children can somehow pull themselves together and look like they're acting all right, And as time goes on, we see both physiologic and psychological consequences. These children um, as a whole, statistically, have a shortened lifespan. We know that the stress that they're exposed to uh, impacts their immune system, uh, reduces the growth of their brain, impacts their cardiovascular system. Psychologically, particularly for the younger children, um, many of the injuries of this trauma sit under the surface like landmines. And often as they go through life, various things trigger these landmines and these children become overwhelmed by emotions that are unbearable. Many of them go on to get what we call post-traumatic stress disorder, which can be not only a disabling disorder, but a terminal illness, as we know, for example, from veterans who've returned from war. Mm. Um and the separation in particular that we impose on these children, again, not only from their parents, but from the guardians, many of whom serve as surrogate parents to them, really is experienced by children as the single most profound stress that any children, any child can endure.
0: We have seen drawings made by some of the children in the Clint, Texas, detention facility. Um, These are drawings that they made of children in cages. Uh, We have posted those uh, drawings for people to look at at indivisiblepodcast.org. As a trauma specialist, what do you see in these drawings?
1: Oh, these drawings are so deeply, deeply disturbing. what you see in these drawings are a number of things. So one thing overall is that these these drawings, although they were made by 10- and 11-year-olds, look like they were made by much, much younger children. These are the drawings that look like they were made maybe by a 5- or a 6-year-old, maybe a 7-year-old, um, because of the lack of detail uh, in the drawings. And that tells us how profoundly regressed were these children who made the drawings and also how overwhelmed they were by the experience, how triggered they were even in recounting these experiences through the drama, through the, um, through the drawing. I think the thing that you really see in these drawings is how utterly alone and naked and helpless and fearful these children are, how they are entirely locked into a situation where they are being forced against their will to do things like lie down. The The picture that has the children lying down, they're not lying on beds, they're not sleeping. All of them are lying stock still with a big guard over them, looking extremely menacing. These children have no adult in their vicinity who's there to protect them. All of the adults that are, that are drawn into, into these pictures are menacing, dangerous adults. And you feel that these children have absolutely no agency to either help each other or help themselves to escape from the horror of the experiences that they're depicting.
0: You know, it is so painful for us to just hear about these conditions and see them from the remove of the media. You've seen all this firsthand. And I'm wondering, how do you personally cope with seeing children in situations like this?
1: Well, I think I'm very fortunate, really, in that um, the skills that I have enables me to have an actual position in which I feel that I can make a difference, that I can do something either through my writing or through my speaking, through interviews like this or through the work that I do with attorneys where I write reports and I write declarations and I go to court. I also do um, a lot of individual work where um, I work with uh, a partner to help uh, people who are either being uh, uh getting out of detention or coming across the border. I help people to find attorneys. I help people to be released. I help people to get their bond paid. And these one-on-one encounters sometimes offer a kind of immediate gratification that is a sustenance for me. Um, And I think that for me, there's a sense that simply being an American uh, whose government is the agent of the terrors being visited upon these children means that I really must do something. So the work uh, is driven very much by my feeling of responsibility uh, for the trust that these children and their parents, because I've interviewed many parents as well, um, have placed in me. And when it isn't that, it's my my children and my animals who keep, mm. who keep me going, as they do many of us.
0: Well, the work that you're doing is just, in a word, heroic, and I think we all thank you for, for doing it. Um, as I mentioned at the top, you work to determine compliance with the Flores Settlement Agreement. And just for those who may not be familiar, briefly tell us what Flores mandates in terms of how children must be treated.
1: So. Let me just say the Florida Settlement Agreement came out, out of a lawsuit that was originally introduced, I believe, in 1984, and the agreement was finally finalized in 1997. And it sets out what are really minimal standards um, of care to which the government must adhere uh, when they have custody of of immigrant children. Um, Safety and security uh, is one uh, that we've heard a great deal about. Um, The government is compelled to keep these children in the least restrictive environment. Um, many of us feel that many of these children are not in the least possible restrictive environment. Uh, the government is compelled to release them to um, appropriate sponsors uh, or family members as quickly as possible. Um,
0: I believe there's a 20-day limit on that, isn't there?
1: That's actually a myth. There is oh, okay. There isn't, really a 20-day limit. And I know that's something that's been perpetuated a lot. Um, But that 20-day limit um, had to do with certain, it was an interpretation that came about through one of the cases, but there actually is no hard and fast rule that there be a 20-day limit. The one hard and fast rule that does exist is that the government is not meant to keep these children in uh, border protection facilities for more than seventy-two hours, um, and as we know, even you know, toddlers and babies are being kept there for weeks on end. Mm-hmm. Uh, but basically, the the requirement is that children are to be removed from government custody with all due haste as quickly as possible, and um, that is something that's not been happening. And in in fact, um, the length of stay for these children in government detention facilities. Uh, has doubled from uh, the years of the Obama administration and at times tripled. And when that happens, of course, when you fail to release children from these facilities, it increases the population in these facilities. When you increase the population in the standard shelter facilities, what happens is that the number of children back up. And it's this backing up of the system that has enabled the government to uh, create contracts with places that are for profit and are unlicensed by the state, like Homestead is, Um, enables the government to keep children in the squalid conditions of places like Clint and Ursula. Um, so releasing children is really releasing the children from their custody uh, in a prompt way um, is really the, the key um, and the key to 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 the mental and physical health of these children as well. Now,
0: I know you're not an attorney, but I will just ask you, uh, in yes. your opinion, is the U.S. government in violation of the law right now?
1: Well, I work with many attorneys, um, and I've learned a lot of law. <laughs> no, I'm not, as you say, an attorney. And uh, in my opinion, absolutely the government is in violation um, Of certainly of the Flora Settlement Agreement and and one would argue some other aspects of of the Constitution. These these children do not have hearings. They are not given uh, the capacity to challenge their lack of freedom um, and the fact that they are incarcerated. Uh, The the government objects to calling the shelter facilities detention facilities uh, or calling them secure facilities, but in all of these facilities, children are locked in. They're not able to get out. And while occasionally some of them do provide, you know, a day trip or an afternoon trip to go and get ice cream, none of these children have the kind of freedom that they would normally have in any regular shelter facility. So in answer to your question, you're right. I'm not a lawyer, but it is my opinion from my understanding of the law and in lawyers that I work with that uh, the government is very much in violation uh, of the human and civil rights and the legal rights rights. Uh, of these now thousands of, of suffering children.
0: Well, it goes international as well. The AP reported on Tuesday that United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights, Michelle Bachelet, saying that children should never be held in detention facilities or separated from their families. She said it may be a violation of international law. Um, one perhaps bright spot that has emerged is legislation that you just learned about from Oregon Senator Jeff Merkley. It's the Stop Cruelty to Migrant Children Act. Can you tell us about what you've learned about this?
1: Yes, this is uh, very promising and very heartening. And we really have to uh, thank Senator Jeff Merkley of Oregon for uh, really being at the forefront of of much of the the congressional concern. about these children, um, and Congress really, really does need to step up to the plate. They really are the one body that are capable of doing something to make a difference in the lives of these children. Um, so this is, as you say, it's called the Stop Cruelty to Migrant Children Act. It is Jeff Merkley, along with a number of his uh, congressional allies, um, and it addresses the conditions uh, of children Um, from everything from uh, uh, border patrol, border protection facilities, to ICE detention facilities, because we do have some children in uh, family detention, and those facilities are are run by ICE. Um, It does dress address things uh, such as ORR detention and prompt release of children, it really looks at a full range of issues which uh, clearly and deeply impact the psychological and physical health of these children and tries to address the ways in which many of the policies uh, of this government really inflict terrible cruelty upon these children.
0: And I will just ask you before I let you go, what do you personally think that it's going to take to change policy in this country?
1: Well, I hope it isn't going to uh, take a change in government, but I think many of us fear that it will. Um, I believe that it really will take uh, the capacity of the American public to really uh, receive accurate exposure. Um, to what is going on in these facilities. I think at our heart, we are a humane country. And I think that if the people of this country really understand what it is that we are doing to these children, that they will rise up and demand of their lawmakers uh, that things change. And I think that's what it's going to take. I think, you know, I I don't know if it's going to take people taking to the streets, but it is certainly going to take people remaining consistent and persistent in their concern about this. What we don't want to see is a bit of what we saw last summer where there was, you know, a swell of concern around the child separation issue, and then uh, a kind of receding of that concern, uh, which enabled this administration to step step in and uh, devise even, even more cruel policies uh, toward these children and families. So people need to remain persistent and patient and to work together and really to demand uh, of lawmakers that they keep this issue on the front burner.
0: Well, I know that message absolutely resonates with my listeners. Dr. Amy Cohen is a child psychiatrist who specializes in trauma and immigration consultation. She is a Flores Settlement Council expert. Dr. Amy Cohen, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for all the work you're doing.
1: Uh, Stefan, thank you so very much for having me.
0: And next, as part of our coverage of state races in 2019, we talk with Democrat Ben Stuckert. He is president of the Spokane City Council, and he is running for mayor of Spokane. And he joins us now. Hello, Ben. Welcome to the show.
2: Thank you very much for having me on. I appreciate it.
0: So, you know, for those of us who may not be familiar, just give us an idea of the politics of Spokane. So we know that the surrounding area is pretty red, but parts of the city are pretty blue. What can you tell us about the politics there?
2: Well, so we've done some pretty extensive analysis of the last 10 years. and We're becoming bluer. If you actually have a D behind your name um, in Spokane elections in the city proper, you win. Hillary Clinton won. Um, Lisa Brown won overwhelmingly. I think Lisa got uh, in the congressional race against Catherine McMorris-Rodgers. She got 58% in the city of Spokane. Um, as you said, we are surrounded by... Um, The 6th district typically used to be a swing district, but I think the 3rd was more competitive back then. It's become a solidly 75% Democratic legislative district in the heart of Spokane. The 6th district leans Republican, but the 3rd district overwhelms all Republicans. But we're surrounded over here, and I think our goal in this election really is to say win this election, we've had a progressive, since I've been on council, we've flipped it from a four to three minority of progressives to a six to one progressive majority on council. That's great. Um, But if we we can hold the mayor's seat and keep a uh, super majority on the city council of progressives, I think then in Eastern Washington, hopefully with the data analysis that we've done, people just stop. Really, we can focus our energy on expanding our reach out the 6th district, make some dents in the 4th district and the 7th district and the 9th district over here and on county seats because our county commission which only has three members um, is three Republicans. So the media doesn't even cover it because every vote on that county commission is a three to zero vote. And the media sometimes just covers controversy. So we need to pick up seats on that county commission, but hopefully we win this mayoral race and keep a progressive majority we can start focusing our efforts on Eastern Washington outside of the city. Is really my goal.
0: Great. Well, I want to talk a little bit about the surrounding region in just a little bit, and some of the uh, issues that uh, affect things out there. But, but I'd like to give people a sense of your background. So, you worked in the private sector. You worked in the nonprofit world. Why politics?
2: Well, I was a political science major in college. I didn't. I was on the debate team and. Uh, I got third in the nation my last year at college at Gonzaga. Wow. So I met some people that uh, were political consultants, actually, while I was on the national circuit debate. Ended up working somehow for the Oakland Raiders for one of those political consultants in 1995. Um, what did so you do with the
0: Oakland Raiders? I just have to ask.
2: For a while, I was uh, the manager of all the ticketing. Okay. And then for a little while, I was uh, the customer service manager for all our season ticket holders. Um, then I, I, moved around, I moved to Madison, Wisconsin and was in the ticketing industry there. They sent me to, uh, Sydney, Australia for the Olympics in 2000.
0: That must've been exciting.
2: I, it was, it was great. Um, except I think I had one day off for the three months. I was there. <laughs> but, uh, I think that's like politics when you work in the ticketing industry, but I worked uh, for a local ticketing company here in Spokane called tickets West for seven years and managed a uh, three state region, but I got really tired of, uh, quarterly, uh, Demands for a 20% profit because when I first started working for them, they went public. They were a subsidiary of Red Lion Hotels, and I got tired of not being able to pay my employees well while they're demanding a 20% uh, increase in profits every single quarter. So I went back to graduate school, then uh, ran a nonprofit for four years. During my time there, the nonprofit dealt with keeping kids in school. Uh, it was a local part of a national agency called Communities in Schools. And we started that locally. I ended up um, starting with 20000 in the bank. And by four years later, we had a half a million annual budget with 10 employees, helping a lot of the kids in the schools. But at the time, I dealt with uh, a lot of politicians because there's just not money for prevention out there. And prevention is really upstream where you're going to make the difference. If we could have high-quality pre-K, we all know the, the 7 to 1. Every dollar you invest is $7 paid back. And I was really disappointed in our local city council and the mayor at the time that gave lip service behind closed doors, uh, but didn't want to fund programs like that. So when the opportunity came up to run for council president in 2011, uh, after dealing with a lot of politicians, I realized I always hold people up on pedestals. And I realized they were no smarter than me, and I'm just as hard a worker as anybody else, so I ran for office.
0: Yeah, that reminds me of the old story about going to Congress. When you first arrive in Congress, you wonder how you got there. And then after a couple of terms, you wonder, how did all these other people get there? yeah, so, I,
2: yeah. Very true statement.
0: <laughs> so I want to get into some of your platforms, uh, and I want to just jump into the deep end and start with uh, one of the biggies, and that is homelessness. Uh, you've said that you want to decriminalize homelessness in Spokane. What do you mean by that?
2: Well, right now we have a sit and lie law and anti-camping laws on the books and um, if they're violated and people, we try to move them and offer them services, but then at a certain point we're giving them tickets and somebody that's homeless, the ticket doesn't do well. And we send, most of them we send, we have a community court that offers services. That's great. They don't end up in jail. Uh, But to me, it really means that everybody goes to community court where we have a setup in our community with our community court, where you have the, judge and the prosecutors and the defense attorneys all working in tandem, and then the room next door is uh, 25, some days you have up to 50 service providers next door. None of those people should ever end up in our jail system. Uh, That's just kind of for me, misdemeanors like that that are uh, quality of life violations downtown, should be completely decriminalized, there should be no chance to go to jail, it should just be how do we connect you to those services. And I see too many times where you know, we're charged $125 a day by the county for a bed in their jail, which is really antithetical to sending somebody to jail to me.
0: What do you see as some of the root causes of homelessness in your city?
2: Well, we do a point-in-time count every January, and our number one root cause that we're seeing right now is family issues. That can range from domestic violence to people getting kicked out of their homes. The second most common reason is lack of income. Um, which I know I was just reading some data on 2017, 85% of the wealth in our country was uh, gained by the top 1%. And I think we have a huge problem nationwide on wealth inequality. And then the third reason was no housing. We have a housing crisis. And I continue to talk about here what for we've lost money, we've lost ground on building um, low-income housing or subsidized housing. And then also we have no housing up on the top end though. And we we've just backed ourselves into a corner where there's no inventory available. So rents are rising at extraordinary rates and those people are ending up on the streets. And then we, in 2018 in Spokane, we had 800 people that did everything right, went through the process, got a housing voucher, which is just as good as cash. And there was no affordable housing for them to take their voucher. So we've got an absolute crisis on our hands. And then, You couple that with the fact that there are 700 homes that are vacant in Spokane that are owned by big banks that are um, going through different parts of default. And if you think about that, our homeless count in January, on January 20th for the people in the emergency shelters and unsheltered was 1,300 people. If you could just get everybody uh, either a house to live in so you take care of all those vouchers and then we deal with the banks and... I think we need to take some drastic measures with the banks. Right now, our staff at the city is just working one house at a time. And I think you need to go sit the bank presidents down as mayor and talk to them about how we're going to solve this problem and explain to them that we're willing to go all the way and grab those houses. There's also, you know, I think since we deinstitutionalized mental health, we didn't ever come up with the correct solution for mental illness in our society. And I think the 80s are really coming home to roost right now we're seeing that 60% of the people in Spokane County jail have co-occurring disorders. So two or more. Um, and that's just absurd that you're taking those people and locking them up. And then, you know, Seattle had their Seattle is dying video and that made its rounds over here. And some people just want to say, like, I have my main opponent. She just is continually citing, uh, some anecdotal evidence that 80% of the people almost on our streets are addicts. And The data doesn't show that. And then our shelters, we're providing shelter beds are just beds. And we're not providing any case management inside those shelters. And you need to be, if somebody needs housing or somebody needs mental health services or they do need addiction services, the place to get that to them would be in the shelter system. So we've got to do a better job in our shelter system of providing those opportunities for people to get services.
0: So you really, as you're laying out, and we know this, this is an enormously difficult and a very interconnected problem. And um, you've admitted making some missteps on this issue and others. You addressed that in a section on your website called controversies. I, I have never seen anything like this on a campaign website before. Why did you decide to include a list of your controversies?
2: Well, we were putting together my Merrill run, and I guess to me it's about being honest and I make mistakes. And I'm, I'm a really blunt person, and that gets me into trouble a lot of times. I'm very direct, which then can be seen as either too assertive or aggressive. And so I have these faults, but I also like to be very blunt and direct about the fact that I screw up and can admit when I make mistakes. And, you know, we all I, – I don't believe there's anybody out there that doesn't make mistakes. I just believe you – you're in a much better spot if you own up like I forwarded an email and got an ethics violation for it and I screwed up I forwarded an email I shouldn't have I voted there were uh they sold it to us as landscape under the freeway and it was rocks and I voted for that and then it came out that it was really to displace the people that were living under the freeway and I made a mistake and I got a lot of flack for it. I still get flack to this day for it, but I apologized in the press and I put it on my controversy page just because it's, I think it's better to admit when you're wrong than to to just deny it.
0: Yeah, I think it's extraordinary. I'll just ask you to speculate. Why do you think politicians have so much trouble admitting their mistakes?
2: I I don't, I guess I'm not a good judge of that. I also think politicians aren't very direct about their answers and. I oftentimes in interviews will just say, I don't know the answer to that one, because that's too big a problem for me to even wrap my head around. Like, if we talk about homelessness, when I'm talking about housing or I'm talking about a shelter system, I'm talking about like a short-term Band-Aid, and then I'm talking about housing can be a long-term solution, but how do you attack income inequality at a city level? You know, you can provide jobs, but you're still not getting people out of generational poverty And there's all these larger issues at play, whether that's the state tax system, which is upside down or the federal tax system, which is uh, not even close to what it was in the 1970s on the uh, marginal tax rates. And so I can't even touch those as a city person. So to me, it's okay to say I can't solve that, but I can sure as do my best to provide some comfort for people and I can provide solution for some people. But I just think politicians, you get wrapped in your own little world you definitely end up living in a bubble because you only hear from the loudest people in the room and sometimes i don't think that especially now i'm out doorbelling all the time and the loudest people in the room don't necessarily reflect the and you don't want to offend anybody right i don't think anybody goes into the world thinking you're gonna make people angry but i've learned like land use changes especially there are losers in land use changes if you're going to upzone a neighborhood Those people that are in their single family home that don't want it to be up, there's no way around it. But if you think that's the right thing to do, you're gonna anger some people. So I guess that goes back to my controversy. I'm sure over my seven and a half years as council president and then being very direct, I've made 50% of the population of Spokane disappointed in me, but I'm hoping that the good things we've accomplished, uh, maybe 60% of them or 52 will vote for me because they have uh, confidence that the good things outweigh the bad things.
0: So I want to shift over and talk about a difficult subject, um, and that is white supremacy and hate groups seem to be gaining a lot of power in eastern Washington and Idaho right now. What is their presence like in Spokane and and what's been the city's response?
2: Well, so the two most disturbing things I've probably seen in relation to that, I guess I got three, three stories real quick. The first is, is I get called in because I'm definitely one of the more progressive leaders in town when a um, convention wants to come to town. And Lutheran USA was going to come. It would have been, in, I think, 2022. Um, they have 25,000 people they bring to your community. Convention business is real good for our downtown. And they called me in at the last minute and were real concerned uh, because walking around and visiting our town, um, they didn't half of their convention would be people of color and they didn't see that here. And so we're, uh, um, unfortunately, we have not fully as a community, embrace multiculturalism and diversity. And that's a holdover to the fact that we're close to Northern Idaho. Now the city of Spokane, I've seen two instances that were just brutal. Um, the N-word was painted on our Martin Luther King uh, Children's Center one morning and I got called and you know, I lived like four blocks from there and I drove down and we had a rally that afternoon. And then the uh, Salish School, which is was I think the first school really reteaching Salish, in Eastern Washington, that lost the lost language, you know, and that's how you kill a culture, is kill its language. Yeah. And really bringing that back and the skill, this beautiful work, somebody broke in and put swastikas all over the inside of the kids' classroom. Hmm. And so we had a big rally there. Um, I'm proposing that we create an office of civil rights in the city and it becomes a cabinet level position. Because the organizations I've been involved in um, don't just pay um, equity and diversity lip service but they actually live it. And so that every decision uses that lens when they're making decisions. And then the leadership of organizations needs to reflect what you want the world to look like, not what you, um, not reflective of where you're at now. And so my cabinet has to be uh, very diverse and deliberate and reflect to the community what we want Spokane to be. Um, We're we're surrounded by uh, people that support people like Matt Shea who wanna create a Christian nation out in the fourth district. And, you know, they've shown up. Matt Shea led a rally outside of one of my council meetings, and there were 80 people with rifles outside. Mm. Um, They're just not the type of people you should even welcome into any community. And it's it's a fight, but I think from a leadership perspective, you have to speak out. But you also need to surround yourself with that diversity, what you want the community
0: to look like. And Matt Shea is a Spokane Valley uh, representative. He's a Republican and he is uh, affiliated with hate groups. He's a figurehead of the Liberty Movement, which wants to split off the eastern part of the state. And he was also found to have offered to conduct surveillance of uh, liberals and progressive activists in Spokane. Can you talk about your response to that as city council president? Yeah, I don't uh,
2: my response is that's disgusting and I can't believe people that live 20 minutes from me vote for him and it's wrong. It's he's immoral. Uh, what he's calling for is, is awful. Uh, we actually, when that broke, I, I don't remember if it was the guardian or who broke that story about him surveying um, liberals in town. We were trying to do our own research to figure out who he was surveying because they do call to actions at the city council meetings. And I remember when I got out of my car that night when they 80 of them were out there with guns, and they were mad because I was giving a uh, salutation, so saluting the uh, Council on American-Islamic Relations, so CARE. And these are the people that are really wanted us to do the salutation, so that they didn't. They felt like city leadership was behind them. And then I show up for the meeting, and there I was on my phone. My assistant called me and says, "Take the back entrance." And I'm like, "Oh, I already parked my car." And he's like, look up. And I looked up and there's 80 people with guns. And Matt Shea is on a microphone. Hmm. And Matt Shea said, there, look at him. There's Ben Stuckert now, the one that's doing this. So then they all turned and looked at me. And uh, I got to say, it made me sick to my stomach as they all followed me in. And then they ended up standing in the back of our council meeting with their guns and trying to intimidate us. And um, I don't know. You just got to you feel awful and sick to your stomach, but you have to be strong, I guess, and you have to kind of laugh off their stupidity because, and I don't know, laugh isn't the right word because you have to take these people very seriously, but you can't also like be afraid to honor our Islamic brothers and sisters that are out there just as contributing to society, probably more so than any of those 80 people who were standing outside my council meeting. Um, But, you know, we had a bomb at our Martin Luther King uh, March in 2011 We're a long long way from recovering, but I think recovering is a lot more than even what I'm talking about, an office of civil rights or that. We have to admit our original sins. We have Hangman Creek south of town because they hung uh, the Native Americans on Hangman Creek. And, you know, there's still uh, Fort George Wright Drive, and I've been getting pushback on trying to change the name of Fort George Wright Drive, and he's the one that went and hung the Indians and massacred all their horses. And we've got to, you've got to first admit you've got a problem that we've got a genocide on our hands and then we've got this original sin of slavery and the genocide of the Native Americans. And then you've got to figure out it's not just a matter of lip service and it's not a matter of changing the world the way you want it. I think there does, I think the conversation at the national level about reparations is long past due and that's something I, I personally believe that we should all be supporting There's got to be a make it right, and we're still not right now, and there's still Donald Trump in the White House, which is just as, you know, I remember on election night in 2016 calling my friend and just bawling my eyes out because she's got two little little kids. That's awful to think that that things have gotten worse, and they shouldn't get worse in our lifetime. I'm sorry. It's just a really emotional topic, and especially you grew up in Eastern Washington and went to a really liberal Catholic church. And I didn't know—I don't think when I was little, growing up in a Catholic church with my mom was a teacher and my dad worked in social services his whole life—that I understood how how backwards some people are here in Eastern Washington. And we've got to—you know—I could have settled in Seattle or I lived in Madison, Wisconsin for a while, which is—and I lived when I was in Oakland, I lived in Berkeley, but I want to be here in Spokane because. We can make it the community we
0: want it to be. And you're on the ground there trying to make a difference, and, uh, and, and it's extraordinary. Um, I, I would like to end by talking uh, about something that is uh, much more hopeful, and that is your embrace of the arts. This is something that's very near and dear to my heart. You're a huge advocate. Um, talk a little bit about the importance of the arts to a city.
2: I think you can make the argument that without the arts, Spokane would be exactly where it was in 1995. We were, when I graduated from Gonzaga in 1995, I left town because downtown was a, a dead spot. And we're now, I think yesterday, I just got an article forwarded to me that we're one of the top 10 up and coming foodie places in the country. Oh, that's great. And that's it was great. a fairly large organization that had named us that we've got these wonderful chefs here. We've got music venues now that are thriving and we've got, Uh, more art galleries than we've ever had before, and we've just got this thriving scene where it's culturally, and that brings, and like if I'm a student, we we only keep about 25% of our students from Gonzaga and Whitworth and Eastern Washington University stay here, but as we see generational change, the more of those students that come from out of the area and stay here build a stronger Spokane. We need to get that number up every year, but The only way you're going to keep those young people here is is having that thriving arts and culture scene. So it's not just about the aesthetic value of I like music, I like art. I think it strengthens our town. And, you know, we've seen record economic growth over the last five years in Spokane. And that doesn't mean that it's filtering down as it should or that everything's perfect. But we're up and coming right now. And the reason for that, I believe, is this really strong arts and culture scene. And in my first year in office in 2013, the mayor eliminated the arts department at the city. So I spent two days on the phone, begging people for money to create a nonprofit so that we'd at least have one organizing force in town. And then I ran on a, when I ran for my second term as council president, I was really forward about how we were gonna triple the funding for this nonprofit with city dollars. And when I won, that was the first thing we did. And to me, the artists in this community are near and dear to my heart and no town has a soul unless they have arts, and, a strong arts and culture scene. And we're seeing that thrive right now. And that's what's gonna get us through it, get young people staying here and we'll see generational change where we can really, our values will be reflected outside of Spokane.
0: I couldn't agree more. Yeah, no town uh, has a soul uh, without the arts. Totally agree. Uh, So let's talk. We'll end on campaign funding. Uh, We do know that there is quite a bit of GOP money coming for uh, your Republican rival, uh, Nadine Woodward, your likely Republican rival. Um, Where can people learn a little bit more about your campaign? Where can we start filling your coffers, donate all that good
2: stuff? So my website is www.benstuckert.com. Stuckart.com. Um, I have a, the controversy pages is on there um,
0: <laughs> yes it is
2: the accomplishment. I have an accomplishment page so you can see what I've led what issues I've led on over the last seven and a half years um, really proud of those and then what my solutions are and then there's also a blog area called articles that I've been trying to dive deeper and deeper into issues as we go through this campaign. Uh, so there's a you know a very long article on my thoughts on housing and on how we need to revitalize our neighborhoods and what we need to do for homelessness and public safety. Uh, so it's just BenStucker.com, dot com and uh, it's got the links to everything,
0: including uh, a place to donate,
2: including a place to donate right on the front page or there's a donation page. So it'd be appreciated immensely. She's we actually I think just passed her this morning, so we're about even with her. We'll end the primary even with her on money, uh, but the mayor is. The mayor, current mayor, was uh, chief of staff for uh, Kathy McMorris Rogers, and she's holding a—he's—I uh, think he's holding a fundraiser for her next week. So we'll probably see another influx of big bucks coming into her.
0: Okay, well, we'll try and send some money your way. Ben Stuckert is a Democrat running for mayor of Spokane. It has been such a pleasure talking with you, man, and uh, and best of luck.
2: Thank you very much. I really appreciate it.
0: And we will finish up with our call to action and as with last week's show we really only have one focus and that is on the humanitarian crisis at our southern border continue to call your representatives and our senators and ask them to consistently speak out about what is happening to families and children in our name ask them to visit these detention facilities we're very happy to read rich Smith's article in the stranger saying that Congresswoman dr. Kim Schreier is planning a trip to the border this is tremendous news for other members and our other two senators, let's keep the pressure up to go, to take media, to make as much noise about this as they possibly can. Per our discussion with Dr. Amy Cohen, we will follow up and have more information about Oregon Senator Jeff Merkley's Stop Cruelty to Migrant Children Act, so stay tuned for that next week. Also, Friday is the Lights for Liberty vigil, which is starting at various times across the state. I currently count 40 events, so there is likely one near you. I will have a link for you to check out on the website and that is this week's call to action and that is also it for this week's show if you missed anything if you would like to catch up on past shows if you would like links to the things we talked about here you can find all of that and more at indivisiblepodcast.org you can also subscribe to the show there too if you would like to get in touch I would love it the email address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com and the twitter handle is at indivisiblepod The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. Our associate producer is the awesome Charlotte Gittleman. Thank you again to my guests, Dr. Amy Cohen and Ben Stuckert. A huge special thanks to my pal, Aaron Albanese. And as always, my thanks
2: to you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.